0: This is Larry Lessig. In the last episode, we heard the story of a citizen assembly failing. The drama of that story is actually even greater than I or Kata suggested, and I predict we'll eventually see a new constitution in Iceland based on the draft the council deployed. Parliament's failure is a constant and nagging outrage among many in Iceland. That nagging will grow. At some point, it will boil over. But this week we turn to an extraordinary success, Ireland. Ireland's effort at remaking democracy began about the time Iceland's did, and for the very same reason, the financial crisis of 2008. Footnote, there's an extraordinary comparison between these two nations that I've not seen made very well about that financial crisis but let me know if I'm missing something. The the comparison is this, both Iceland and Ireland suffered enormous fiscal losses because of the 2008 collapse. But astonishingly, because of a case decided in some international court on the basis of some technicality, Iceland was forgiven its debts, while the Irish people were forced to assume the bank debt and will be paying it off for a very, very long time. I know we speak of the luck of the Irish, but if there was ever evidence for the existence of elves, it is this. Anyway, back to the story. Today, we're going to speak with David Farrell, a professor of politics at the University of Dublin, David was a close observer of the extraordinary experience Ireland has had with what we call citizen assemblies. He's observed them as a political scientist and as a citizen of Ireland. As you'll hear in this conversation, he's an inspired critic, by which I mean both that he is an inspiration to academics everywhere, and that though he is an appropriately critical academic, he's inspired by the practice he is critiquing and so obviously MI David is a specialist in the study of representation, elections, parties and deliberative mini-publics. His most recent books include The Oxford Handbook of Irish Politics, Deliberation Mini-publics: Core Design Features and Reimagining Democracy: Lessons in Deliberative Democracy from the Irish Frontline. These are just 3 of more than 20 books that he's published, but the focus in his current work which is primarily deliberative mini-publics, is the focus of our conversation today. David was the head of the school at University College Dublin from 2010 to 2013, and again from 2016 to 21. Prior to his move to Dublin in 2009, he was a professor and head of social science at the University of Manchester. He's held visiting positions at Australia National University, Harvard, Mannheim, and the University of California, Irvine. From 1995 to 2018, he was the founding co-editor of Party Politics and the president of the Political Studies Association of Ireland from 2012 to 16. Stay tuned to this conversation with David Farrell. David, thank you so much. Um, Most people in America, as in practically every American, (laughs) has no clue about what's gone on in Ireland, what kind of extraordinary innovation has happened in Ireland. Not innovation in a historical sense, because obviously the idea of citizen assembly is something that we've had for ever since the beginning, really, of self-government. but in a very modern sense. So I just want you to introduce the story to help us understand what got set up and why uh, it became so significant.
1: Yeah, and it's a long story, so I'll do my best Please. to try and condense it as much as I can. Um, it, it really all starts with the Great Recession in and around 2009, 2010. And uh, Ireland was very badly affected by that, probably one of the worst affected of all the countries in Europe anyway. So there was a deep crisis in the country and politicians were very much on the defensive. The existing government was kicked out of office in an election in 2011. And so there was an air of crisis and and I could go into the details, but it was about as bad as it can get. We were on our knees as a nation. And it was in that context that the Irish political science community uh, decided to try and make our case for how we could try and change things so that we could try and avoid crises like this in the future. We felt we needed an argument about political and constitutional reform. And in the mix, we said one of the things we should think about is rather than having the angry citizens outside the parliament banging on the gates, why not bring them in into the centre of the discussions so that citizens, ordinary citizens, can have a, a, an input? So the government were, and you have in 2011, were receptive, And in 2012, they established the first process. It wasn't a Citizens' Assembly. It was called the Convention on the Constitution. But to all intents and purposes, it was a Citizens' Assembly. What was unusual was that this first process, a third of its members were members of Parliament. And that's very significant. Um, So it discussed, among other things, marriage equality. And so a subsequent referendum led to Ireland being the first country in the world to introduce... Marriage equality by popular vote of the citizens, and also the first country in the world to have a a successful deliberative process result in a, a major policy change of that kind.
0: So let me let me stop you there, just because it's the details are are, are important, even with this first convention um, structure. So there are thirty three members of parliament, and there are sixty six randomly selected members of the public, right? And then there's one. Person who's like the chair um, of the of the event of the process, right? These sixty six that were randomly chosen were people obligated to participate, or were they chosen and then they could say, "No, I, I don't have the time or the ability to do
1: this." The latter. And you'll find in in all the cases of these citizens assemblies, that's the that's the way it's done. There, there is no obligation. So in that sense, it's not quite like jury duty. Um, and, and there are details about the recruitment process, which we could go into, which were far from perfect, at least in these early Irish cases. They've they've improved of late. Um, the 33 members of parliament, four of those 33 came from the Northern Ireland Assembly and the others all came from the uh, the parliament, the two chambers of parliament in the Irish Republic. Um, and they were not randomly selected. So they were proportionate to the size of the party uh, groups within the parliament. Um but the significance of it was that to this day in our parliament, we still have people who were part of that process, legislators, and who have very fond memories of being involved. They had firsthand experience of being in the room, literally in the room, as part of a deliberative process. And if ever there's a reason as to why we've had so many of these processes since, that's probably the biggest reason.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's a very important design choice that uh, we're going to see other countries weren't open to. I guess they were much more skeptical of including parliamentarians. But I think it turned it, it turned out to be genius because it really got buy in from the political process in a way that these systems don't necessarily assure. So that so that was pretty important. But then as you shifted to the process that began in twenty sixteen. That changed, right? So, so that's that's the ongoing process that exists right now. So, how did how did that get teed up, and, and what's distinctive
1: about that? Yeah, correct. It, it changed in in that we now adopted the title of citizens assemblies, uh, which is the the more normal uh, way one calls this particular form of deliberative mini public, and um, that no one really knows exactly why they changed from the, what they did in 2011. But most people realise the probable reason for it was because the first thing that this 2016 Citizens Assembly was asked to discuss was whether to legalise abortion in Ireland. And that that was an extremely hot topic. It, it remains a hot topic, as I know it is, in your own country. Um, but it was clear that it politicians, particularly of the mainstream right of center parties, would have struggled to get any legislators willing to be part of a, a process of that kind. So that themed it, it was made clear, no, let's just run this as a regular citizens assembly. So how did it work
0: with the abortion assembly? So uh, the, the assembly to discuss issues of abortion. So it's, a, it's again, it's 100 people, right? 99 participants in one chair. What, does the chair have some cool Irish name for it? Or um, is there some way to
1: refer to the chair? We, we would say carhillock in, in oh, Irish.
0: Carhealoc, okay. Um, so, but these are randomly selected again. And tell us a little bit more about that process now as we're talking about the regular citizen assembly process.
1: Yes, yeah, so the random selection process, which was used again in 2016, was the same as 2011, which is where the government civil servants who are running the process commissioned a survey company, a regular survey company, and gave them the task of recruiting 99 people, which involved cold calling at people's doorsteps. So every 10th door, they'd knock on your door and they'd be looking for a certain demographic profile. And depending on who opened the door, they would make the invitation and hopefully the person would come. And as you may know, um, the more common way of recruiting for a lot of these deliberative processes is a different method. It's a two-stage method where you send out letters and people self-nominate. And Ireland has now adopted that in subsequent citizens' assemblies. But in 2016, it was this less perfect system. And I say it less perfect because one of the problems that you tend to find with this cold calling approach is that it's quite easy for me to say to the person at at the door, yeah, this sounds interesting, I'll do it but I haven't shown much commitment in mm-hmm. engaging with it. And so for that reason, what we tended to find with a lot of the early Irish processes was very low turnout and very high turnover of members.
0: Mm-hmm. So but the, so when did the, sh- the Citizen Assembly process shift to being this more normal process?
1: It happened with the most recent ones. We're now on to our sixth uh, sub- mm-hmm. process right now. There's one on drugs. But just preceding this one, there, it was the one on, um, there, there, were, there were two run in parallel, one on whether to elect a Dublin mayor, and one on the question of biodiversity in Ireland. These were run in parallel. And for these two, they adopted the more normal, best international practice of, of this two-stage process.
0: So that's the process like, uh, that, that France used in the Climate
1: Assembly. Um, Exactly. And, you know, the organizations like the Sortition Foundation have been promoting this method. The OECD in its, uh, you know, discussions of best practice in the deliberative wave have talked about this as an advantageous uh, method. So most practitioners and experts would say this is the better approach than the one that the Irish were using back then. And why, not to
0: dawdle on this question, but why has um, the jury method not been tried or considered appropriate, um, you know, because, you know, at least in the American or the Anglo-American uh, tradition, this is an important part of public service, a jury duty, um, and it would seem that you could... Answer a question about whether you're really getting a random selection of the attitudes of people if you actually had an obligation to show up. So, is it is it just too expensive, or what what would the what would the real limitation be?
1: I, I'm guessing that the the key one would be the uh, it it would be a brave politician who would pass a law that would require its citizens to accept an invitation to come to one of these things. My guess is that. Depending on how this evolves, um as we get into the realm of potentially embedding these things and maybe moving towards the sort of hybrid um, uh, you know d- dream of a democracy that some promote, where, for example, your your second chamber of parliament is a sortition chamber. Once we get into those sort of areas where they really have significant decision-making powers, perhaps then that's the moment in which you'd have to explore that kind of change mm-hmm. you're talking about. And
0: so have people, academics, who've looked at this gold standard process, the one that's now used um, most usually where there's a general inquiry and then people volunteer and then a random selection from that, have, have, have academics tried to evaluate what kind of bias there might be in that group or what way would we want to think about discounting because of a potential bias?
1: There's a fair bit of, of academic discussion, as you can imagine, um, on this. And I think it's safe to say that everyone accepts that there is going to be a bias, that there is a bias, but one can always do one's best to try and control for that as much as possible. I mean, we know, for example, in the case of the deliver to polls that I know you're very familiar with, that that, that is just as much a, a risk as it is with these these sort of citizens' assemblies type approaches. And you try to balance for that in terms of getting a sense of you know how the demographics m- might vary in terms of you know if they haven't been involved versus if they have been involved. That's one approach. Another approach, which is actually quite interesting, we see it in the case of many of these the British uh, citizens assemblies, is that you don't just recruit on demographic. You can also recruit on attitude. And um, so, for example, the the when the British House of Commons set up a citizens' assembly on climate change a few years ago. Uh, they carried out in the survey, to, in the recruitment, they surveyed people on their attitudes towards the climate uh, uh, climate emergency. And they reflected that in the membership. So there's, there's ways in which you can try to mitigate the worst effects of this. But I think everyone accepts that, you know, there's always going to be a bias. And I mean, I don't know enough about meth, uh, research on jury duty, but... You know, I'm I'm 63 and I've never been on a jury in my life, so <laughs> it makes me wonder, you know, is, is there a bias issue anyway, even if you have supposed obligation?
0: Yeah, no, it's certainly true. Jury duty has evolved in a very corrupted way. I mean, not only do people have lots of ways of getting out, the lawyers are pretty good at um, – making sure it's not really a random representative sample that's sitting on a jury because they want people who are obviously going to be strong for their side. But but it's just the tradition of obligation that I think is interesting. Um, okay, so so that's the way they're selected. Um, and obviously the early ones were extremely important around uh, questions of um, gay marriage. Uh, and the abortion one was very important too. Tell, tell, us, tell us what happened with the abortion um Uh, Citizen Assembly. Yeah,
1: because the abortion one, I think, was where Ireland really showed how this could be done very well. um, And it still held up as probably the best of the ones we've run so far. I mean, a little detail just to be aware of was that one that was appointed, that was set up in 2016. As I said, it discussed abortion first, but it had five other topics uh, that it had to discuss afterwards. I think it was five. It's way back in time now, but certainly a number of other ones. So you know, and, and they weren't run nearly as well. But the abortion one was a top priority for that government. And they allowed the Citizens Assembly much more space than had been the case, for example, when they discussed uh, gay marriage. Um, so that the Citizens Assembly in the end uh, had five weekends, uh, five effectively five months in which the process of deliberation occurred. So that was one big positive about how that was run. But the second and probably even more important was a very clear instruction when it was set up on what would happen after it produced its report. And what what followed when it sent its report to the Irish Parliament was that the Parliament set up a special all party committee of both Houses of Parliament to review that report. And it took, I think, from memory, nine months to review that report in detail, calling up many of the same experts that had appeared before the Citizens Assembly. In other words, it didn't ignore it. It didn't put it to one side. It didn't sort of say, that's fine. Let's move on. And as professional legislators, try and see how we might do this ourselves. It, it engaged with it, agreed with a lot of the recommendations, not all of them, but agreed with a lot of them. And then in turn, that report was debated in the plenary of the parliament and then ultimately by the government. And then it went to a referendum. So what we saw in the abortion case was a much better way of embedding the output of the Citizens' Assembly within our parliamentary structure. And subsequent Citizens' Assemblies have sought to try and follow that same approach.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, let's just be very um, basic about the actual process at the abortion assembly. So you had randomly selected people who show up. What are they given before they show up? What do they know before they actually meet
1: together? When they first show up, very little. Uh, uh-huh. When they first show up, it, the common way we do it in Ireland is it's a sort of big event in Dublin Castle, which is our our main sort of venue for these sort of things. And the prime minister and the, um, you know, and leading politicians and, and others are there to greet them. And, and then they're given a nice dinner and, and they all go home. So the real work starts uh, a few weeks later. When they all come to the hotel ballroom, all our events are run in a hotel ballroom for reasons I can go into if you want to. And um, they're they're but they're all at little round tables. So that the entire for the duration of their of the citizens assembly, they all sit on, in, in effectively at the same table. You would have a wedding reception that evening, mm-hmm. a round table with a with a facilitator and a note taker at each table, and they start to receive information. So before they would have arrived on the very first weekend, they would have received um, short documents produced by the experts who were being commissioned to provide some briefings for them. And they, these, uh, these documents are kept very short and written in a language that the lay person can understand. And then they, then they start to be educated. So the common way is you get a bit of information in advance. You get some uh, presentations by experts that you can then question and then also practitioners and lobbyists and uh, people who have been impacted. We had, um, you know, we had uh, presentations done confidentially, of course, by women who had either had abortions or decided not to have abortions, who could talk about their own personal experiences. So gradually over the course of the various weekends, the members are brought up to speed on, on the topic.
0: And are the members public in the sense that they go around and identify themselves as somebody who's in the abortion assembly?
1: It's a really important question. With some topics, uh, which are less controversial, everything is open. Uh, You you generally get the names and the counties that the members come from, and they are all on camera for the plenary discussions. And a lot of the plenary discussions are put up on our Parliament channel um, or live streamed on, on on the website. When it came to abortion and uh, they they treaded much more cautiously people members were allowed to indicate if they didn't want to be seen on camera so their tables were positioned in a way that the camera would never pick them up and the identities of the members were kept quiet for as long as possible one thing that's done in in all of the irish cases uh, which is important here is that at the start of the process, the chair makes an announcement which is carried on the media to the effect that no lobbyist or any other individual should attempt to interfere with an individual member. And so far, we've had no experience of that.
0: Yeah, so uh, they shouldn't attempt to in the sense of it's a crime to, or it's just inappropriate to?
1: It's inappropriate. There's no legal sanction. Um, The only sanction is that they say, uh, in in the event that, let's say, a lobby organization or an NGO tried to, that they would be excluded from having any uh, right to come into the room to speak to members. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And so in the process of um, the initial stage, there, is there, uh, you know, a typical, as you know, deliberative polling will have asked people upfront what they think about something and then ask them
1: after the deliberation. Is there any
0: upfront polling done before the process
1: starts? It's very limited. And, you know, every... As you, I'm sure you know, there have been loads of these citizens assemblies all around the world. I'm only here now talking about the Irish case, and 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 again, we can go into more detail on this. But the Irish case tends to be very tightly controlled by government civil servants, and so academics like myself are allowed into the room under sufferance. Um, and so, I've been involved in uh, providing an evaluation of some of the earlier citizens assemblies. I've, I've become more critical, and so I'm somewhat excluded of late. Um, and the experience there was, yes, we were allowed to ask questions, but the questions had to be cleared with the civil servants uh, you know so not for example, on the abortion topic, we were not allowed to ask the members opinions on abortions until the third week. Uh, we were specifically excluded from asking them, so we've published a paper in which we try to show how we used a proxy measure to try and assess how their attitudes changed on abortion but we we were somewhat restricted in in, in that regard. So there is a possibility to survey them, but it's very limited in the Irish context. Um, There's no control groups like you might find in some of the deliberative polls, so there's no one to compare against. Um, And also in the Irish process, we're specifically excluded from recording the table discussions, which is a serious limitation on any research. Mm -hmm. And um,
0: uh, the plenary discussions, though, those are... Broadcast or um, those are obviously
1: recorded. They're recorded, and to this day, you can download uh, all of them. They're all still on the website. Mm-hmm. And and so the ones where there's a more extensive survey
0: right from the beginning, is there something we can learn about how the deliberation actually affects people or affects attitudes? Do we, you know, do we typically see attitudes veering further apart, or we, do you see them coming closer together, or what's what are we learning from that process?
1: So I haven't been involved in the more recent ones where there's been much longer periods to try and assess that. M- most of the ones I was involved with, you were dealing with one weekend or two weekends of discussion. Mm-hmm. The one where we really had something to play with was the abortion one. And we published a paper on that that does show that attitudes liberalized on abortion mm-hmm. Uh It's somewhat what could have been controversial if our data had been released before the finish of the Citizens' Assembly, but I can clearly say it now, is that um, there was a a distinct bias in favour of abortion among the members from day one. And of course, we now know with hindsight that that was just simply reflecting that public opinion was already well ahead of the politicians' on the need to liberalize abortion. So so that actually they were a good representation of where public opinion was. However, uh, they appear to be skewed in favor of abortion. So there was a large number who were in favor of abortion. There was sort of middle ground who were really unsure and a really small number, it was, it was almost in single figures of those who were against mm-hmm. abortion. And as we tracked them across the weekends, what we saw was a shift towards a liberalization um, in, in, in a liberalizing direction. <laughs> and, and
0: in the construction of the, the actual room with the people sitting around the tables, is there some effort to think about who's sitting with whom? Is there some effort to make div- tables diverse or uh, assure that there isn't polarization possible because of the dynamic of the tables?
1: Yeah, it's sort, of an, it's sort of more in an artistic way than in a scientific way, I suppose, is the way to put it. But um, what tends to happen is that there's a senior civil servant who seconded from other duties for the duration. And that civil servant, among other things, makes sure that the tables are organised appropriately. So what you tend to find, as I'm sure you'll have seen yourself, is quite quite quickly as you observe these processes, particularly close up, you get a sense of who are the, the more big beasts, who are the ones who are a little bit more circumspect. And they try to balance the tables accordingly. So uh, you, what table you sit at is prescribed by the organisers and every weekend you sit at a different table. Oh, I see. But they try to do it in a certain way that they, if there's a somebody who's quite vocal, they might balance that with another person who's quite vocal, for example, or they'll make sure that their better facilitator is managing that table. <laughs> is there a sense that 100 is not
0: enough or is 100 a good number? I think,
1: I think the view is that 100 seems to be about right. So somewhere in the area of... 60, 70 80 up to 150 to maybe 200 seems to work quite well in 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 these citizens assemblies and I suspect one of the reasons why one wouldn't go much bigger than much higher than that is because you're asking these people to come back on a number of occasions it could be six seven eight nine even ten occasions and getting that sort of size of of, of a group to continuously keep coming back is, is quite a big ask.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean I have a sense of the geography but like so how long are people traveling on average to come to the event that they're supposed to participate in
1: I mean it's not bad it's it's clearly worse in in larger contexts uh, but it's not so bad in in Ireland but I can remember having dinner with two ladies who had come from Donegal and Donegal is the most northern part of the island of Ireland um with no train connections so you're talking about, and, and these are people who relied on public transport, they didn't own cars. So you're talking about people who are taking two or three buses and trains to get to the destination. And the idea is that people generally arrive on the Friday evening. The work takes place all day Saturday and then Sunday until the early afternoon. And then they, they go home to their and go back to their day jobs. So it's a huge undertaking for, for the, particularly those who are coming from far flung parts of the, of the island.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So gay marriage and abortion were obviously two issues that um, the parliament would have found difficult to address in a way that was really reflective or representative of the public for obvious interest reasons. Uh, And and both of them then produced something that had referenda that supported the ultimate... uh, The the people voted in a way that supported the ultimate uh, liberalization in both contexts. Um, Does does that... Sort of looking at that experience, and then the other referenda, which have been, you know, some of them quite technical, like should we have a mayor of a particular place? Um, Others, you know, pretty existential climate change, problems around population uh, aging and things like that. Is there a way to identify which types of topics it makes most sense to use an assembly for as opposed to topics where... Ordinary government should be able to deal with it quite well.
1: I think it's it's such an important question, and it's one that there's a lot of debate over. Um, I mean, you know, there's a specific Irish angle which you've you've intimated a few issues of in your question there, where some of the some of the issues that have been given to a citizens assembly are frankly daft. And should never have been given to a citizens assembly. Some of them are issues that are showing a sort of sense of kicking a can down the road, where it does, it wouldn't shouldn't require a citizens assembly to discuss it. And then there are some like the gay marriage and the abortion ones, which are exactly right. So, so there's a there's an Irish a- angle to that, and we know from best practice that's emerging, particularly in Belgium, there are ways around that sort of problem. But but you're also asking a more fundamental question about what are the right kinds of themes to give to a citizens assembly. And I remember I used to give what I call the Ken Carty answer. Um, My buddy from British Columbia, who you you adopted this phrase from a friend of his about how you should never have a you would not want to fly an airplane designed by citizens assembly. I remember I used to give that answer when I gave talks, and then a friend of mine said, "No, that's wrong, David, because." You wouldn't set up a citizen's assembly to design an airplane, but you might set up a citizen's assembly to parse out certain questions to it, you know, large or small, fast or what, you know. Um, so you, in, in theory, you could have a citizen's assembly on on anything, um, providing you frame it carefully enough so that it can be done that way. But But honestly, I think if you're really going to use this, because it's an expensive, cumbersome kind of device to use, I would be of the view that you should use it sparingly And for big, emotive, hot, normative, inclined topics, Mm -hmm. I think that Mm -hmm. they are the ones that work best.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, as I reflect on it, I would think that if you had a methodology that said, if you've got an issue where there's a gap, significant gap between what we know from general polling the public wants to happen, and what we know the Congress or state legislature is actually doing, and that gap is sustained over a significant period of time, five years, let's say, then that seems to be the sort of issue that it would be ripe to put in a citizen assembly. Um, so like gun legislation in the United States is a perfect example where there's overwhelming support for some kind of gun um, safety legislation in the United States. Um, but it's almost impossible to move in every single legislative context because of the effect of, um, you know, the gun uh, lobby. Um, so so that's... Um, money in politics, I mean, those sorts of issues are ones where we can observe this gap. And you might think of the assembly then as a kind of corrective, democratic corrective, where we have reason to believe the representative body is not actually doing what the public wants. Let's, let's invoke a different process to test whether the representative body is correct or whether the public's, you know, in the sort of crass polling is correct. Is that, would, would you agree with that as a procedural description?
1: I would indeed. I mean, I guess the only thing then is what um, enables or what uh, encourages the politicians to take that leap of faith and effectively hand over a degree of autonomy or, or, you know, agency on the issue to this other body?
0: Yeah. I mean, you could even turn that into a political process. You could say that the president has the right um, to call an assembly, you know, every term that he or she is elected to. So, president could call two assemblies if they're re-elected. Um, or a, uh, a House of Congress could call an assembly where somebody moves and if the House of Congress agrees, then you would call an assembly for that. Or state legislators or governors could call it. But you could identify a process where ordinary government could trigger an assembly and then a process where citizens might trigger an assembly. But both of them could have like filtering mechanisms to say it does make sense to do it here because we do see a democratic gap. And I do have the intuition about airplanes, although I I agree that there's all all sorts of value judgments about airplanes that we might put in. But I'm anxious about citizen assemblies that seem to call on ordinary people to make the sort of judgment that if I were... Called upon to make, I would say, look, that's what we pay you the big bucks for. Like, you know, <laughs> what should traffic policy in downtown Boston look like? Well, you know, there are a thousand questions that take real science to answer, and I'm not going to be able to figure that out. But, you know, ask me about value questions about like who should be included in our democracy. I think everybody should
1: be able to do that. Yeah, it's 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 a really tough one. I mean, there are a few things there that occur to me. I mean, one is. I can remember giving in a response to a journalist about the abortion topic in Ireland. And, uh, you know, because what what happened at the end of all this was we had a referendum that changed the Constitution, inserting a new clause that gives the power to the Parliament to legislate on abortion. Straightforward. That's now the clause in our Constitution. Whereas before, there was a right to life of the unborn uh, equal to the right to life of the mother, which created this mad impasse. And... I remember saying to the journalist, you know, if we hadn't had the Citizens' Assembly, we probably eventually would have had that referendum and we probably eventually would have had a legalisation. But the question that would have been put to that referendum would have been a very different question but for the Citizens' Assembly. It would have, I'm sure it would have been inserting a clause that said abortion should be allowed in Ireland only under these specific circumstances and, and no, under no other words to that effect. Um, mm-hmm. The game-changing role of the Citizens' Assembly was that it educated the political class and the elite more widely, about things that many of them readily admit they hadn't considered before. Abortion pills. The fact that in modern-day reality, women were already accessing abortion in Ireland. Um, What do you do if if you really strongly feel that a woman should have a right to abortion if she's been raped? How do you, in a judicial system facilitate that in the time that's required uh, to have that. You know what I mean? So that it, yeah. it opened it all up in such a way that it was pretty clear after the Citizens' Assembly had concluded that old old thoughts about how to frame the question needs to be changed. And so I think the role of the Citizens' Assembly isn't just about guiding the politicians about where public opinion is. It's also about helping to frame how it is you're going to try and resolve this particular conundrum that you think you need legislation to, to deal with it for. <laughs> so, um,
0: I, I mean, you obviously are living in Ireland, you are, have been involved in this process, but you've been somewhat critical of the process. But I wonder, um, as you just kind of think as an Irish citizen, I'm assuming you're an Irish citizen, how is how do Irish people think about this innovation in Ireland? I mean, do most people know about it? And um, for those that know about it, do they think this is cool or do they think this is you know, do they roll their eyes? Like, what? What is the? What's the reaction?
1: I think it's safe to say most people don't know about it, but then there are certain moments when it co- hits the headlines for some reason or another, and people are briefly aware of it. So we we only have limited research to go on, but we know from uh, research we we carried out during the referendum day on on abortion, we know that from survey questions, a large proportion of the people uh, about I think from memory it was two thirds. Of respondents to a survey on polling day, uh, were aware of the citizens' assembly, aware enough to answer correctly objective knowledge questions on the citizens' assembly, and we know that that had an impact on them voting yes. So th- it's it's sort of very indirect and hardly perfect information. We know for I know from uh, word of mouth from one of the civil servants who'd run one of the more recent citizens' assemblies. I haven't seen the data yet because they haven't been released, and um, that when they were recruiting they sent out all those letters in the stage one and from international best practice suggests that maybe four or five percent will will respond will send a response in ireland it was ten percent and when they surveyed them it's really high and when they surveyed them apparently one of the reasons given as to why they sent their letter back um, was because they were aware of citizens' assemblies. So so there is, there is a, um, some knowledge of it, but I wouldn't say it's extensive or certainly extensive enough for people to have formed strong views about the merits of citizens' assemblies. Mm-hmm. So c- characterize your
0: critique or the concerns that you've begun to identify in a way that helps us see what we might do better.
1: Well, I've learned a lot in recent years because I've sort of fell into the space by accident back in 2010, 2011. And I've become more educated on it because I've been involved in advising on citizens' assemblies in other countries, and particularly in Belgium. And to see how practice could be run much better than here in Ireland. And I I think there are sort of three things, I'd say uh, briefly, on why I think the Irish case isn't perfect. One is, as I've been saying, it's run by the civil servants. And whatever about how it works in your country, in the UK style of parliamentary democracy that we've effectively adopted for historical reasons you can understand, um, the, the civil servant is the creature of government. And the civil servants is there to do the bidding of the government minister. And so that already creates a problem that it's so tightly controlled. It's not given to another agency as you'll see in other countries. The second problem is that the agenda is completely set by government. Uh, And that's how, as I said, you get some daft issues coming on the agenda, issues that people literally scratch their head. Why why are we discussing this? Um, Whereas in in Belgium, we see some really good practice on how you can open up the agenda and democratise the agenda process, which I could go into. And then the third, and I'll stop then, is what happens at the outcome? Because the outcome... It very much depends on whether the government are inclined to say, yeah, we'll go with that or not, which they did in the marriage equality and the abortion cases. But in so many of the other cases of Irish citizens' assemblies, they've just ignored it. And again, there's good practice we're seeing in Belgium and other places of how you try to influence that output stage. You don't take the power from the politicians, but you, there's some willingness on the part of the politicians to try and share that a little bit uh, with others.
0: Okay, so um, you've had a lot of experience in Belgium. Would Belgium, like if some alien landed on Earth and said to you, David, tell me the place on Earth that's doing citizen assemblies the best, would you say it's Belgium right now? Mm-hmm. So
1: so help so help us understand what's distinctive about the Belgium case. I think what's distinctive about the Belgian case, you know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I, I mobilized with a bunch of political scientists back in 2010, 2011, And independently, there were a bunch of Belgian political scientists, particularly led by a a, a public intellectual called David van Raybroek, who's a wonderful book and done so much wonderful work in this space. But David was sort of a key figure, but there were a load of political scientists working with him. And we got to know each other in that year. And what was kind of instructive was, was, in a sense, we succeeded very quickly. 2011, 2016. So Ireland was the trailblazer. Nothing much seemed to happen in Belgium until about 2018 or so. And ever since then, suddenly it's it's really blossomed and it's blossomed from the regional level. It's only now that the Belgian authorities are doing their first citizens assembly at national level. So up to now, it's developments in um, Brussels and in the German-speaking community where we've seen some of the most interesting innovations. Um, and what's really nice to see in the Belgian case is that the civil servants and governments are letting professional agencies play a key role and they're listening to the academics and being prepared to adapt and experiment with good practice in a way that we don't see here in Ireland.
0: So what, what have been the most um, interesting issues that the Belgian, you know, both the, at the regional level or at the national level have considered?
1: I think it's too early to be able to give a definitive answer on that because both the, well, the, the national one is only about to start. It, it's about to have their first National Citizens Assembly on a just transition. Uh, so that's going to be kicking off in the next couple of months. Just transition? What's that mean? Just transition. So the whole idea that if you're going to address, um, you know, the the whole climate change agenda, I the whole agenda about evolving how we run our systems generally, can you do it in a just way that recognizes the difficulties of different groups for all sorts of reasons, demographic and, and other? So that's going to be a really interesting one, and I, I'm going to be one of the advisors on that. But the... What you've seen in the case of the regional ones is that they're focusing on what were they? I I can't quite remember some of the topics offhand, but they tend to be very regional-focused topics by their nature because of the uh, you know the jurisdiction that they they deal with. But what's really nice is the model that they're developing, rather so much than what we've seen in terms of output. So you know, briefly, the Ost-Belgian model, which is the model for the German-speaking community. Not, not known that there is a third language in Belgium, which is the Germans, and it's about 90,000 strong. It's a tiny community with the most beautiful parliament in the world, I think, uh, in um, Eupen, in East Belgium. And they decided in 2018-2019 to establish a permanent citizens' assembly, it's called. And what it consists of, very briefly, is a permanent citizen council. I don't quite remember the titles correctly, but it's more or less along those lines. About 50 people uh, who are regular citizens. And they decide that in this year, we're going to have a citizens assembly on topic X. And then as an administrator who randomly selects the citizens to produce the topic, uh, have the citizens assembly, its report goes to Parliament. Parliament is obliged to debate respectfully with that report, even call the members of the Citizens' Assembly in to discuss with them. So they can't ignore it. They can't kick it into the long grass. They at least must engage with it respectfully. And then there's a random selection from that Citizens' Assembly that replaces a third of the members of the Citizens' Council. So that every 18 months, the Mm. membership of the Citizens' Council is changed completely. But critically, they've all been involved in these things. So they have some... And so you, you create this feedback loop um, and you create a system where the agenda is largely outside of Parliament, but par- Parliament is not obliged to accept it, but they're obliged, as I said, to treat with it respectfully. And I think once you play around with frameworks like that, you get a really interesting innovation. Mm-hmm. And
0: and these are also people selected in the way you described, and are they compensated at all for participating?
1: Yeah, the 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 common way is you you give an honorarium of some kind. Uh, It's usually a token. It might be a hundred euro or so for a day, but there is some compensation. Yeah, Mm
0: -hmm. and and like if I have childcare needs, are there extra uh, resources available to cover those needs?
1: Yeah, commonly you get uh, childcare, uh, and increasingly there's also an awareness of the need to engage all citizens, and in fact, not just citizens all residents in countries. So you are seen a lot more efforts of outreach. And so if you're talking about people who have disabilities, that they're accommodated as well. So for example, in all the Irish processes, they have sign language all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Belgian uh, is your favorite, but
0: like if I were to talk to you in five years, where do you think the most interesting places in five years will be what are you seeing right now about where it's spreading and and who's taking it up
1: i mean what what I don't know if, if immediately I'll be able to answer where the most interesting places will be. Well, what I what I am really finding fascinating is how fast this is spreading. I mean, France has now had a few, Germany's now establishing these things as well, and um, so it's it's creeping in, in Berlin or beyond Berlin. Beyond Berlin, now we're also seeing at the German at the Bundes, at the bundestag level they're setting up new ones up. So it's spreading across more more and more countries. I've mentioned the UK already, um, but actually, I think that the thing that's really interesting to watch is what's happening within the European Union. So they recently had a conference on the future of Europe, which concluded its work, I don't know, about a year or two ago. And at the heart of the conference on the future of Europe were four citizens panels, they called them, but they were effectively citizens assemblies, each with 200 members randomly selected um, and each given a set of topics. I won't pretend to say it was perfect, But it was fascinating to see this experiment. And one of their meetings was held in Dublin and I was helping to facilitate some of it. So I was able to be a fly on the wall for this. And to be sitting in a room in Dublin Castle with uh, 12 citizens from all, all different European countries, all speaking different languages, all of us wearing headphones, translators in Brussels, translating simultaneously, documents being translated automatically as they were being typed up. And as seamless as you could get it. So we're seeing multilingual uh, deliberative practices. And in the light of that experiment now, the European Commission, which is the body that drives the agenda-setting process within the European Union, has now started the process of establishing citizens' panels to debate with it on proposed provisions before they send them to the Council and Parliament. So this, the European Union is now really going for this. And, and in a five years' time, I'd love to see how far that goes.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if you look across the pond, um, it's a pretty desert-like location. The United States—I mean, Canada has done interesting innovation around this, but the United States is not. You know, wh- what do you tell yourself about why that's true? Is it just you know we haven't we don't take seriously what's happening in Europe, or is there something that feels more fundamental about? The failure for this to be picked up over here.
1: It's such a it's such a tough one. It really is. I mean, um, I mean, we know there are a really important innovations in the United States, not least the work of your colleague um, Jim Fishkin with his deliberative polls, but also mm-hmm. the um, the citizen initiative review process in Oregon that it's spreading in other countries, including Switzerland, are now is now starting to use the CIR process there. So another American innovation that seems to be picking up. So we see pockets of it in certain parts of the US, whether it's just the politics of size, whether it's just that your your political system just doesn't lend itself to it, I'm not sure. I mean, I do remember about eight years ago or so, I was part of a small group who were invited to a discussion in Chicago um, with an NGO that was looking into the possibility of possibly having a deliberative process um, in Chicago itself. And we had a two-day discussion about how that would Work and how it would operate. And my abiding memory of that two days was when we got to the second day where we were discussing uh, how how you would finance this. It, the amount of money that was being discussed was off the scale. I mean, an Irish Citizens' Assembly costs about a million euro. Uh, the French one, I think, cost about three or four million, maybe five. The UK one cost about 500,000. <laughs> These guys were talking 20, 30, million to run one of these things. Because they were talking about, well, all the NGOs are going to get involved. You're going to need lawyers involved. If you're going to to have a referendum that might follow from this, there's going to be all the uh, setting up that's going to have to be done. And I don't know, all the material that's going... It just went on and on and on. And nothing ever came of the discussion. And My guess is it was because it just looked like it was just going to cost too much and they didn't have the funds for it. So I don't know if it's just the complexities of your system, the size of your country, or just an unwillingness on the part of politicians yet to embrace it. You know, we had this accident of our crisis, politicians on their knees, receptive, a change of government. And we were coming into the room at just the right time in 2010, 2011 in Ireland. And maybe that helped. Uh, and, And maybe you still have to have that dreadful crisis, which, you know, Uh,
0: we're optimistic there'll be lots of crises going forward in the United States. (laughs) But it is interesting how hard it is to get people to imagine some governmental process outside of the ordinary political process. And what's bizarre to me about it is, you know, if you look at the American Constitution, the only power that's really entrenched as a right to... Uh, as a right to um, participate um, in critical government decisions is the people through juries, right? So the jury power is quite substantial in the United States. I mean, for federal jury for federal criminal prosecutions, you can only be indicted if a jury agrees uh, that you should be indicted. So like we, the people, can only—you can only be indicted if we give you up. Um, and you can only be convicted if we agree that you deserve to be convicted. So we, the people, can— extend pretty extensive immunity in all sorts of contexts because of this power that's right in the Constitution. And we know it's developed in a way that um, has enormous economic consequences. So, you know, a jury decides $50 billion has to be taken from an oil company because of an oil spill. That's real governmental power exercised by ordinary citizens. You would think against that background of a system that has always handed to ordinary citizens enormous governmental power, not advisory power, like real power, take money or, you know, abominably execute people in the United States because of these decisions. You would think that tradition would leave people open to the idea that, well, maybe we should be doing this in other contexts too. But I can tell you, every time I like raise this question, people are astonished with the very idea. It's like, wow, can't, how could we even do that? Um,
1: I mean, the o- only thing I would say is I, I was involved in a multi authored book a few years ago. It was a slim little volume on deliberative mini-publics, and one of the things that became apparent in our group, there were about eight of us writing this book, and um, quite early on was it we should no longer adopt this notion that there are different kinds of deliberative processes a deliberative poll a citizens assembly a cir a citizens jury that because the blending and the hybridization yeah. that's ongoing is such that it's it's this thing is evolving in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways that we could go into and you know the work of Esteline and Neblo playing with congress people um you know in terms of uh, what do they call them? deliberative town halls shows yeah. it an, an interesting experiment so who knows what interesting way one could try and make a little chink in the American system in the future?
0: Well, we're trying. Um, And uh, I have a proposal about, um, you know, we have this very difficult to amend constitution. And the only amendments that have ever been proposed have been amendments that have been, uh, that, that have ever passed have been amendments proposed by Congress. And we know that, Congress is such a broken institution that there's almost no way to imagine supermajorities sufficient enough to propose an amendment. The other path that's outlined in the Constitution is uh, a convention. Most people are terrified about the idea of a convention because who would these delegates be? And like they could be taken over by the rights or by money, and they would propose crazy amendments. And then what would happen? Like you would abolish uh, birthright citizenship or something like that um but we've uh, so i've i've suggested that um actually because of a case i lost in the supreme court it's pretty clear you could bind the delegates at a convention you could tell the delegates what they are allowed to vote for or not allowed to vote for and so we're beginning to talk shop the idea around that states would set up their own citizen assemblies on constitutional amendments like proposed constitutional amendments and then you know, they would be introduce the amendment, they would have a period of time where they could deliberate on it, um, and then at the end they would make their views known. And initially it would be advisory, but eventually we could get to a place where you would say, look, if you are a delegate from a state that had a citizen assembly, you can't vote for an amendment that the citizen assembly has not supported by 60% or something like that. So that would be a way immediately to make this terrifying process to democratize the, or tie it to a democratic process, this terrifying convention process, and, and make it something that's plausible as a way to amend the Constitution, recognizing that Congress itself has become an impossible one to do. So, so I, I, you know, if that happened in the United States, I would predict you would see citizen assemblies explode in all sorts of other contexts too, because its, it's role would be so significant it would get above the fold, as we say, on newspapers or whatever the equivalent is online.
1: That sounds fascinating. And it reminds me, I have a colleague in in Poland who runs um, Citizens' Assemblies where he gets uh, the mayor of the local city to agree to the establishment of the Citizens' Assembly, uh, including a supermajority rule. Um, I think it's 80%. So if the Citizens' Assembly votes 80% in favour of X, the mayor gives an obligation in advance that they'll implement that. So there is real-world case there. Wow.
0: So I'm going to follow up with you on that. I'm really appreciative, David, of the time you've given us um, and the work you've done to, to make this real, uh, because um, it's hard not to see this as part of the future of democracy if indeed there is a future for democracy. So <laughs> let's see whether we can save democracy with this. Thank you so much for your
1: time. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you for your discussion. That was fascinating. Thank you.
0: This has been the 25th episode of Season 5 of the podcast, Another Way, produced by Equal Citizens, made by Josh Elstro of Elstro Productions. Find us on the web at EqualCitizens.us. Give us your thoughts, your ideas, your criticisms, your feedback, and spread this podcast, please, so that this work, these words, these ideas of mine and the many who've joined us in this conversation are not lost. And is if you can support us, there's a big red button at EqualCitizens.us to donate. That will help us keep these podcasts going. And it will help us do the work that Equal Citizens is trying to accomplish. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned.